0: Testing 1-2-3, Testing 1-2-3, this is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Does the LDS Church Continue to Hide Its History? In recent episodes, we have spent some time going over the contents of the various First Division accounts given by Joseph Smith. As you will recall, those accounts are given in 1832, 1835, 1838, and 1842. We know that the 1832 account is problematic in that it contains contradictions with the official account or the 1838 account, which has been canonized and is now contained in the Pearl of Great Price in the scriptures of the LDS Church. We will review some of those contradictions and problems as we go along with this podcast. We know at a minimum that Joseph Fielding Smith... The church historian at the time, and also apostle in the LDS Church, was so concerned with the contents of the 1832 account of the First Vision that when he discovered it in the 1930s, he removed the offending pages from the letter book in which it was contained and hid them away in his safe for three decades. So the church definitely suppressed this First Vision account for at least 30 years until it reluctantly brought it to light because knowledge of the existence of this strange account of the First Vision had gone public. We also spent an episode discussing the 1835 account of the First Vision and how it looks like that account was probably suppressed for about a hundred years as well, being kept as it was from the knowledge of the membership of the church until 1966 when it was first published. But now we have entered into a new day of transparency in the LDS church. No longer are they continuing to try to hide the First Vision accounts, which they are no longer able to hide. But instead, those accounts are contained in the Joseph Smith Papers Project, as well as in the church essay dealing with the different accounts of the First Vision. Links are provided there where the actual accounts can be read. But now, in this new age of transparency, the Church has released a new multi-volume history of the Church titled, Saints, the Story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. Volume 1 of this history came out in September of 2018 and was very much heralded by the Church Historian's Office and other associated leaders of the Church as being the gold standard in transparency, in which the Church would now be more transparent about its history than it has ever been. In fact, Elder Stephen Snow, the Executive Director of the Church History Department, said, quote, If people read this, they will understand we've been pretty straightforward in our telling of the story, unquote. But, while it may be true that the Church is being more transparent about its history than it has ever been, nevertheless, we see something far less than complete transparency in this new history titled Saints at least when it comes to recounting the story of Joseph Smith's first vision. Obviously, because this is his first vision, it shows up early in any church history, and indeed it will be discussed in chapters 1 and 2 of the first volume of Saints. The problem immediately presented to the church in producing this new history is what to do with the contradictions, both apparent and actual, that exist among the different accounts of the first vision that Joseph Smith himself Authored. And what we will see is that words were very carefully chosen, and bits and pieces from the different accounts of the first vision were used in order to present what is hoped will be a seamless and uncontradicting story. I think it will become evident that in order to use words so carefully to craft this narrative, the church historians who wrote these chapters had to be intimately acquainted with with all of the language in all of the accounts of Joseph Smith's First Vision. And so before getting to the first chapters of the Saints book and talking about how they use language in order to continue to occlude First Vision difficulties, we are going to take a brief and whirlwind run through the four different accounts that Joseph Smith gave of his First Vision. Now I know that some time ago before I had invested myself in a great deal of study on this subject, it seemed overwhelming to me to try and read all of Joseph Smith's accounts of his First Vision and keep all the details from each account in my mind and which account they came from and how they related to each other. What I want to do tonight is try and simplify that process really because it is very simple and we've already covered a lot of the groundwork in previous episodes. I think the easiest way to go about this is not to go chronologically at this point but instead to start with the official account of the first vision because that's the one That we are all the most familiar with because that is the one that is used primarily if not exclusively in the correlated teachings of the lds church i have certainly never heard any other account of the first vision used in general conference or any other correlated church materials at least up until presently when at least a nod is being made to referencing material from the different accounts of the first vision So we begin with the 1838 account of the first vision. Remember, there are two accounts before this, the 1832 and the 1835 account. Here are the main elements of the 1838 account. Back when I joined the church and before I got my mission call, I had committed this account to memory as many of the missionaries did at the time because if they were called to an English-speaking mission, they had to have this account memorized because it was part of the first discussion. At that time, all of the discussions were completely memorized by the missionaries and were recited word for word to the investigator. In this account, Joseph Smith describes the great tumult of opinion that had arisen regarding the subject of religion among the different religious sects of the day and of the neighborhood in which he lived. This is where he says, sometime in the second year after our removal to Manchester, there was in the place where we lived an unusual excitement on the subject of religion. It commenced with the Methodists. Those darn Methodists, everything bad commences with them. It commenced with the Methodists, but soon became general among all the sects, that's S-E-C-T-S, all the sects in that region of country. Indeed, the whole district of country seemed affected by it, and great multitudes united themselves to the different religious parties, which created no small stir and division amongst the people, some crying, lo here, and others, lo there. Some were contending for the Methodist faith, some for the Presbyterian, and some for the Baptist. Later on, he continues with this account, During this time of great excitement, my mind was called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. But though my feelings were deep and often poignant... Still, I kept myself aloof from all these parties, though I attended their several meetings as often as occasion would permit. In process of time, my mind became somewhat partial to the Methodist sect, and I felt some desire to be united with them. But so great were the confusion and strife among the different denominations that it was impossible for a person young as I was, and so unacquainted with men and things, to come to any certain conclusion who was right and who was wrong. This will become an important element in the First Vision account, important because the 1832 account of the First Vision directly contradicts what Joseph Smith is saying here. Here he is saying it was impossible for a person young as he was to come to any certain conclusion who was right and who was wrong. In the 1832 account we will find that by his own study he had already come to the conclusion that none were right, and all were wrong, and that, in fact, all the different Christian churches had apostatized from the true faith as recorded in the Bible. But this is the 1838 account, and in this account, it is impossible for him to know who was right and who was wrong by his own study. He goes on, In the midst of this war of words and tumult of opinions, I often said to myself, What is to be done? Who of all these parties are right? Or are they all wrong together? If any one of them be right, which is it? and how shall I know it? Once again, this is contradicted by the 1832 account, and yet this is the primary theme of the 1838 account, in which his sole purpose in going to pray to God for wisdom is to find out which of the churches is true, because he cannot figure it out himself, and he does not know, before he goes to the grove to pray, and before God answers his prayer, that they were all wrong. He then says, While I was laboring under the extreme difficulties caused by the contests of these parties of religionists, I was one day reading the Epistle of James, first chapter and fifth verse, which reads, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Then he says, Never did any passage of Scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again, knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God... I did. See, there's that theme again. If any person needed wisdom from God, I did. For how to act, I did not know. And unless I could get more wisdom than I then had, I would never know. For the teachers of religion of the different sects, once again, S-E-C-T-S, understood the same passages of Scripture so differently as to destroy all confidence in settling the question by an appeal to the Bible. You see, once again, there's the 1832 account contradicting this account because in the 1832 account, he has actually settled the question by an appeal to the Bible, and the question was settled by his understanding that the Bible taught that all the Christian churches had apostatized from the true Christian faith. The 1838 account goes on, "...at length I came to the conclusion that I must either remain in darkness and confusion, or else I must do as James directs, that is, ask of God. I at length came to the determination to ask of God, concluding that if he gave wisdom to them that lacked wisdom and would give liberally and not upbraid, I might venture." So, in accordance with this, my determination to ask of God, I retired to the woods to make the attempt. It was on the morning of a beautiful clear day early in the spring of 1820. It was the first time in my life that I had made such an attempt, for amidst all my anxieties I had never as yet made the attempt to pray vocally. Going on in verse 15, after I had retired to the place where I had previously designed to go, having looked around me and finding myself alone i kneeled down and began to offer up the desires of my heart to god i had scarcely done so when immediately i was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me and had such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that i could not speak thick darkness gathered around me and it seemed to me for a time as if i were doomed to sudden destruction now this is not a contradiction to the 1832 account it is however An unexpected addition to the 1832 account, because in the 1832 account, no mention is made of a satanic or dark force trying to interpose itself between Joseph Smith and that God to whom he prayed. Going on in verse 16, but exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the power of this enemy which had seized upon me, and at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, see all the dramatic detail? not to an imaginary ruin, but to the power of some actual being from the unseen world, who had such marvelous power as I had never before felt in any being. Just at this moment of great alarm I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. When the light rested upon me I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son. Hear him. This is going to be the second point of contradiction with the 1832 account of the first vision. It is not a necessary contradiction like the first contradiction we talked about. It is, however, an apparent contradiction because in the 1832 account, Joseph Smith mentioned seeing only one personage whom he calls the Lord and who is obviously Jesus Christ from the language used in the 1832 account. He does not mention seeing two personages in the 1832 account. The 1838 account continues in verse 18. My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right that I might know which to join. Now, this is another apparent contradiction with the 1832 account, because in the 1832 account, that is not Joseph Smith's object in going to inquire of the Lord to find out which of all the sects was right, because he had already determined and knew before going into the grove that none of the sects was right. Instead, his object in the 1832 account in going to inquire of the Lord was one thing and one thing only and that was to ask for forgiveness of his sins. You will notice that that element, going to ask for forgiveness of his sins, appears nowhere in the 1838 account. Instead, the sole object of his going there was to ask which of all the churches was true. Now in the 1832 account, it nowhere appears that he asks which of all the churches was true. Indeed, that would not make any sense because in the 1832 account, Joseph Smith has already concluded that none of the churches are true before he went to pray. So why would he go to ask which of all the churches was true when he already knew that none of them were true? So in the 1832 account, he goes to the woods To pray for forgiveness of his sins, not to know which church is true. In the 1838 account, he goes not to ask for forgiveness of sins, but to know which of all the churches is true. And remember that these two accounts are written only six years apart. 1832 account is the first account that we have of his first vision. It is written in Joseph Smith's own hand. Six years later, in 1838, he writes what will become the official version of the first vision. So this radical change has taken place over the course of only six years. And we'll get to the 1835 account of the first vision presently, which almost serves as a connecting link between the two, falling as it does just about equidistant in time between the recounting of the 1832 account and the 1838 account. The 1835 account contains elements of both and can be seen as the connecting link in a story that appears to be evolving over time. Going on with the 1838 account in verse 18, my object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right that I might know which to join. No sooner therefore did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak than I asked the personages who stood above me in the light which of all the sects was right? And now this parenthetical comment. For at this time, it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong. You see, this is how stark the contradiction is between the 1832 account and the 1838 account. Joseph Smith goes out of his way to say it had never entered into his heart before that all the different religions were wrong, whereas in the 1832 account, yes, it had entered into his heart before. In fact, he'd figured it out by studying the scriptures before he went to pray. So he asks the personages which of all the sects was right, for at this time it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong and which I should join. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. He again forbade me to join with any of them, and many other things did he say unto me which I cannot write at this time. When I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, looking up into heaven. When the light had departed, I had no strength, but soon recovering in some degree, I went home. So that concludes the 1838 account of Joseph Smith's first vision. Let's go to the 1832 account now, so you can see in Joseph Smith's own words, which he wrote in his own hand, what it is I've been talking about in making these comparisons. Here's the 1832 account. At about the age of 12 years, my mind became seriously impressed with regard to the all-important concerns for the welfare of my immortal soul, which led me to searching the scriptures, believing, as I was taught, that they contained the word of God and thus applying myself to them. My intimate acquaintance with those of different denominations led me to marvel exceedingly, for I discovered that they did not adorn their profession by a holy walk. In other words, they did not practice what they preached. They did not adorn their profession by a holy walk and godly conversation. By the way, conversation is an old word that means conduct. Today we think of it as talking, back then it was doing. They did not adorn their profession by a holy walk and godly conversation, agreeable to what I found contained in that sacred depository this was a grief to my soul thus from the age of 12 years to 15 i pondered many things in my heart concerning the situation of the world of mankind the contentions and divisions the wickedness and abominations and the darkness which pervaded the minds of mankind my mind became exceedingly distressed for i became convicted of my sins okay now pay attention if you haven't been up to now pay attention here and by searching the Scriptures, I found that mankind did not come unto the Lord, but that they had apostatized from the true and living faith. And there was no society or denomination that was built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. So here is Joseph Smith's 1832 account, in his own words, written by his own hand, saying, That before he ever went to the grove to pray to God, he had already learned from studying the scriptures that mankind did not come into the Lord, but that they had apostatized from the true and living faith, and there was no society or denomination that was built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. He goes on, I felt to mourn for my own sins and for the sins of the world. For I learned in the scriptures that God was the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he was no respecter of persons, for he was God. And now he goes into a lengthy poetic passage in which he gives the evidence as to why it was that he believed that there was a being who was God. And that's basically because of the creation, because the wonder of the world and the stars and the moon. And he applies the well-worn argument that if there is a creation, there must perforce be a creator. This is how he puts it. For I looked upon the sun, the glorious luminary of the earth, and also the moon rolling in their majesty through the heavens, and also the stars shining in their courses, and the earth also upon which I stood, and the beasts of the field, and the fowls of heaven, and the fish of the waters, and also man, walking forth upon the face of the earth in majesty, and in the strength of beauty, whose power and intelligence in governing the things which are so exceedingly great and marvelous even in the likeness of him who created them. And when I considered upon these things, my heart exclaimed, "'Well hath the wise man said, "'It is a fool that saith in his heart, "'There is no God.' My heart exclaimed, "'All of these bear testimony and bespeak, "'an omnipotent and omnipresent power, "'a being who maketh laws and decreeth and bindeth "'all things in their bounds, "'who filleth eternity, "'who was and is and will be, "'from all eternity to eternity.' And I considered all these things." And that that being, i.e. God, and that that being seeketh such to worship him as worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, I'm not going to break down this entire paragraph, but you will note that he has quoted or made reference to at least four scriptures from the Bible in writing this passage. And not only can we see that Joseph Smith is very capable with words even to flights of poetry and rhapsody as expressed here in this paragraph, he is also pretty darn well familiar with the Bible. We can see that he has actually been studying the Bible as he says. So Joseph Smith has concluded from his study of the Bible that there is a God but that all the Christian churches have apostatized from the true faith as recorded in the New Testament. So what does he do? He goes on. Therefore, I cried unto the Lord for mercy, for there was none else to whom I could go and obtain mercy. And the Lord heard my cry in the wilderness. And while in the attitude of calling upon the Lord in the sixteenth year of my age, a pillar of light above the brightness of the sun at noonday came down from above and rested upon me, I was filled with the spirit of god and the lord opened the heavens upon me and i saw the lord so first off in this passage note that he's crying for mercy it is his concern to be forgiven of his sins and have mercy from the lord in forgiving him of his sins notice also at the end where he says i was filled with the spirit of god and the lord opened the heavens upon me and i saw the lord here is where he speaks of seeing one being. He mentions seeing only one being. He says, The Lord opened the heavens upon me and I saw the Lord, singular, going on. And he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. See, this is Joseph Smith's question, is for forgiveness of his sins. This is the answer that is given. Thy sins are forgiven thee. And now this being, this one being that Joseph records as seeing, continues to speak to Joseph Smith in language that gives us to understand that this being is not the Father, but is the Son, Jesus Christ. Joseph, my son... Thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way. Walk in my statutes and keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory. I was crucified for the world that all those who believe on my name may have eternal life. See, it's pretty hard to dispute that this is Jesus being represented in the 1832 account of the first vision. Behold, the world lieth in sin at this time and none doeth good. No, not one. They have turned aside from the gospel and keep not my commandments. So here, Jesus Christ is confirming what Joseph had already learned, before he went to pray, that there is none that doeth good, no, not one, they have turned aside from the gospel, and keep not my commandments, they draw near to me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and mine anger is kindling against the inhabitants of the earth, to visit them according to their ungodliness, and to bring to pass that which hath been spoken by the mouth of the prophets and apostles. Behold, and lo, I come quickly, as it is written of me, in the cloud, clothed in the glory of my father, period, end of quote from Jesus in the 1832 account of the first vision. Joseph Smith concludes this account by saying, My soul was filled with love, and for many days I could rejoice with great joy. The Lord was with me, but I could find none that would believe the heavenly vision. Nevertheless, I pondered these things in my heart. And so that's the conclusion of the 1832 first vision account. Notice that there is no mention of any dark or satanic influence on Joseph Smith preventing him from praying in this account. Notice that Joseph records only one being appearing to him and notice finally that the reason for going to pray is for forgiveness of sins which he receives and not to find out which church is true which he had already figured out before he went to pray. Now we get to the 1835 account of the first vision. Once again, this is an account that was written down by a scribe of Joseph Smith as he told the story of his first vision to a visitor in Kirtland named Joshua, the Jewish minister. We went over the details of that in a previous account, but here is the account as written originally this is the account that was suppressed for a hundred years and was not published until 1966 being wrought up in my mind respecting the subject of religion and looking at the different systems taught the children of men i knew not who was right or who was wrong now notice this this is just three years after the 1832 account And now the first vision account has developed toward the official version of 1838 in the fact that now Joseph Smith is saying he did not know who was right or who was wrong prior to going to pray. This is one of the reasons I say the 1835 account acts as sort of a connecting link between the 1832 account and the 1838 account because it contains elements of both in what appears to be a transitional process. I knew not who was right or who was wrong, and considering it of the first importance that I should be right in matters that involve eternal consequences, being thus perplexed in mind, I retired to the silent grove and bowed down before the Lord, under a realizing sense that he had said, If the Bible be true, ask and you shall receive, knock and it shall be opened, seek and you shall find, and again, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. Information was what I most desired at this time, see the 1833 account, he wants information, not forgiveness of sins. And with a fixed determination to obtain it, I called upon the Lord for the first time in the place above stated. Or in other words, I made a fruitless attempt to pray. Now, why is it fruitless? Well, he goes on to say, and here we have an addition to the 1832 account where he says, my tongue seemed to be swollen in my mouth. That's why it was a fruitless attempt to pray. My tongue seemed to be swollen in my mouth so that I could not utter And now this additional detail found only in the 1835 account. I heard a noise behind me, like some person walking towards me. I strove again to pray, but could not. The noise of walking seemed to draw nearer. I sprung up on my feet and looked around, but saw no person or thing that was calculated to produce the noise of walking. So that's it in the 1835 account of the first vision as far as this power or influence that prevents him from praying, by swelling his tongue in his mouth. There's the sound of walking. His tongue is swollen so he can't pray. He jumps up and looks around. He can't see anything that would make the sound of walking so it seems a bit mysterious. There is a hint of darkness, of opposition, perhaps of satanic influence here. But note that this is completely absent from the 1832 account and yet it will be very much elaborated upon and dramatized in the 1838 account which we have already read. The detail of the sound of someone walking behind him is also a detail that is not included in any other account either the 1832 1838 or 1842 accounts of the first vision it finds expression only here in the 1835 account he goes on i kneeled again my mouth was opened and my tongue liberated and i called on the lord in mighty prayer a pillar of fire appeared above my head it presently rested down upon me and filled me with joy unspeakable A personage appeared in the midst of this pillar of flame, which was spread all around and yet nothing consumed. Another personage soon appeared. So now there are two personages in the 1835 account. There's one who appears first and then he is joined by a second personage shortly thereafter. So once again, this is like a connecting link between the 1832 and 1838 account of the first vision. In the 1832 account, Only one person is mentioned as appearing. In the 1838 account, two personages are mentioned as appearing. In the 1838 account, there is no hint that one appears first and the second joins him. It simply says, When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages, whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. That's the 1838 account. So once again, the 1835 account seems to act as sort of a connecting link in what appears to be a developing evolving narrative the 1832 account mentions only one being the 1838 account mentions two beings and the 1835 account seems to be a bridge between those two by saying that one being appears first and then is joined later by a second being once again going back to the 1835 account a personage appeared in the midst of this pillar of flame which was spread all around and yet nothing consumed another personage soon appeared like unto the first He said unto me, thy sins are forgiven thee. So notice here's that element again. The element from the 1832 account of going to ask for forgiveness of sins and receiving it, but melding it with the 1838 account in which the purpose of going is to find out which of all the churches is true. Once again, another personage soon appeared like unto the first. He said unto me, thy sins are forgiven thee. He testified unto me that Jesus Christ is the son of God and I saw many angels in this vision. I was about 14 years old. Old when I received this first communication. So although the 1835 account says that Joseph did not know who was right or who was wrong before going to pray, he does not actually include the language from the Lord saying that none of them are right. Instead, he includes only the language from the Lord that thy sins, are forgiven thee. The other interesting and singular detail of the 1835 account is that one sentence at the end, and I saw many angels in this vision. Nothing more is said about these angels who appeared to Joseph Smith in the first vision in any of the other accounts, nor in this account, the 1835 account, are any details given concerning them, why they would appear, what they had to say, if anything, or whether they were just there as a heavenly host of sorts to make the vision more grand and glorious. Nevertheless, Joseph Smith thought it important enough to include in the 1835 account, and I saw many angels in this vision. So that's the 1832 account, the 1835 account given three years later, the 1838 account given three years after that, and the 1842 account, the one from the Wentworth letter, is really not significant for any purpose other than that. It is very clear that these two beings who appeared to Joseph Smith looked exactly like each other. Here is that account from the Wentworth letter published March 1st, 1842. When about 14 years of age, I began to reflect upon the importance of being prepared for a future state. And upon inquiring about the plan of salvation, I found that there was a great clash in religious sentiment. If I went to one society, they referred me to one plan and another to another, each one pointing to his own particular creed as the summum bonum of perfection. See, by 1842, Joseph Smith is throwing in a little bit of Latin the summum bonum of perfection. Considering that all could not be right and that God could not be the author of so much confusion, I determined to investigate the subject more fully, believing that if God had a church, it would not be split up into factions, and that if he taught one society to worship one way and administer in one set of ordinances, he would not teach another principles which were diametrically opposed. Believing the word of God, I had confidence in the declaration of James, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. I retired to a secret place in a grove, and began to call upon the Lord. While fervently engaged in supplication, my mind was taken away from the objects with which I was surrounded, and I was enwrapped in a heavenly vision, and saw two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness. "...surrounded with a brilliant light which eclipsed the sun at noonday." So there we have the detail added that the two glorious personages who appeared to Joseph Smith exactly resembled each other in features and likeness. Notice that it's two personages mentioned as being seen by Joseph Smith and not one as in the 1832 account. But also notice that there's no mention here of the power of darkness that bound his tongues so it made him unable to speak. This appears to be a detail that Joseph Smith elected to leave out of the Wentworth letter perhaps for the same reasons that the church has elected to leave that detail out of the missionary's recitation of the first vision to investigators. They, the two personages, they told me that all religious denominations were believing in incorrect doctrines, and that none of them was acknowledged of God as his church and kingdom, and I was expressly commanded to go not after them, at the same time receiving a promise, that the fullness of the gospel should at some future time be made known unto me." We should also make note of that last line, that Joseph Smith says he received a promise that the fullness of the gospel should at some future time be made known unto me. Joseph Smith is writing this in 1842. The reason this line is significant is because it appears for the first time in this 1842 account. It is not mentioned in any of the prior three accounts, even in the 1838 account, which is the official account of the first vision. There is no promise mentioned that the fullness of the gospel should at some future time be made known unto me. All right, so that concludes our whirlwind review of the four primary accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision. It is very important for us to know the details contained in those different accounts of the first vision before reading the chapters in Saints, that deal with the First Vision, and here is why. The historians who wrote the saint's book are intimately familiar with these four primary accounts of Joseph Smith's First Vision, as well as a handful of secondary accounts of Joseph Smith's First Vision. They know all the details. They know the contradictions. And their goal in writing this saint's history, which is promoted by the church and is supposed to be read by every member of the church, The goal is to be faith-promoting, which means that it is not supposed to contain any contradictions in the first vision account. The goal is to give a recitation and a version of Joseph Smith's first vision that is consistent, that harmonizes with itself, and to the greatest degree possible, harmonizes with the four accounts that Joseph Smith gave, as well as adding details from secondary accounts— Of joseph smith's first vision we will see examples of that as we go along now most of you know what a venn diagram is a venn diagram is one of those diagrams that has circles that overlap at some points and then at other points they don't overlap and the places where the circles overlap is frequently shaded and that is the area that the two circles have in common so if you look at the four first vision accounts you will find places where they overlap and have things in common some to a greater degree than others and other places where they do not overlap because they do not have things in common the goal of the church historians in saints is to tell a story that comprises as many of those details as possible without ever mentioning the contradictions and so in order to do that what they do is they take a bigger circle and draw it around all the other circles that intersect at some places and at some places don't intersect they draw a big circle around all of them and that is the story they are going to tell but they are going to intentionally omit from the narrative any of those problematic parts that contradict each other let me give you an example from my new testament studies every year at christmas time it is common to tell the story relating to the birth narrative of jesus christ now there are two gospels that give us birth narratives of jesus one is matthew and one is luke and when we tell the birth story of jesus or the nativity story of Jesus. It is very common to take the elements from both of those gospels and put them together as if they tell one story. The story that we know in our mind and that is frequently reiterated and is memorialized even in nativity scenes is that there are shepherds who are keeping watch over their flocks by night. They see an angel. A bunch of other angels join this one angel. They announce the birth of Jesus. The shepherds go. They find Jesus. He's just been born. He's lying in a manger. Everything is wonderful. And we also tell the story about the wise men, the three wise men. The scriptures don't actually mention the number, but tradition has given us three wise men. But we tell the story of the wise men who came to visit Jesus from the east because they followed a star that led them to Bethlehem, and they come to worship Jesus as the newborn king, and they bring him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We are all familiar with the story. What most people are not so familiar with is that that is a conglomeration of two completely different stories contained in the New Testament. There is no single story that contains all of those elements. Instead, Matthew is the gospel that mentions the three wise men coming from the east following the star to give gifts to the baby Jesus. And Matthew mentions nothing about the shepherds and the heavenly host and the divine announcement of Jesus's birth. Instead, that is found in Luke. And in Luke, there is no mention of the wise men coming. So what we do is we take two completely different stories with two completely different elements and we combine all those elements into one story. A similar thing goes on in the Saints book with the historian's use of sources to retell the first vision account. Although there are different elements in the different stories, all those different elements get combined into one story as long as those elements do not contradict each other. There are contradicting elements in the New Testament stories of Jesus's birth. I'm not going to go into those right now because that would take me way off the beaten path. I did an episode of this, I believe it was around Christmas of 2017, It may have been 2016. But if you want to hear those details, go back and listen to that podcast. All I want to say for purposes of this podcast is that there are contradictory elements between the New Testament accounts, and what do we do when we retell the story combining all those accounts? Well, what we do is we combine all the elements that can be combined together that don't contradict each other, that can be put together in one single harmonious narrative, and we omit, ignore, and don't talk about or even mention the contradictory elements. And that is precisely what the authors of the Saints book have done with Joseph Smith's first vision. Looked at another way. Their goal is to get from one end of a field to another. They need to walk from one end of a field to another. They are doing it with an audience, and the audience is those faithful members who are reading the book. Now, what the historian knows is that there are a number of minds Hidden just under the surface of this field. And those mines are the contradictions in the different accounts of the first vision, particularly the 1832 account of the first vision as it relates with subsequent accounts. So, what the historian has to do is to make it from one end of the field to the other without ever stepping on one of those mines. Now, this is somewhat of a challenge to the historian, but The thing that the historian has in their favor is that they know where the mines are hidden, and so they are very able to walk around those mines and not have them blow up. What they are counting on, however, is that the person who is watching them, i.e., the faithful reader of this church history relating to Joseph Smith's first vision, is that the reader does not know where those mines are hidden. And therefore, they see the historian walking from one end of the field to the other without blowing up, but they are not able to see how it is that the historian is avoiding the mines. My purpose in going over all these details of the four primary first vision accounts is to show you where the minds are, so that now when we read the saints book, we can see exactly what it is the historians are doing to avoid those minds, to tell one harmonious narrative with no contradictions, so as not to have any of those minds blow up on them and damage the faith of the person reading the book. Well, I'm about halfway through this podcast, and now is as good a time as any to hit you up for donations. It takes a great deal of time and effort to research, record, and edit these podcasts. I am in about 20 hours on this podcast alone. If you appreciate this work and the information I provide in these podcasts, please go to RadioFreeMormon.org right now and make a contribution today. $10 a month, $20 a month, $50 a month, whatever you can afford. I want to thank all of you who have already made donations and encourage the rest of you to make a donation today. Your donations will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. And now, on to part two of this podcast. All right, so finally, let's go to the LDS Church website and let's look up the digital version they have there under Church History of the Saints book. The very first chapter is called Ask in Faith, and it gives a lot of background to Joseph Smith and his family and a number of stories prior to his first vision. However, when we get down far enough into chapter one, there are a couple of paragraphs that have to do with the first vision account. It will be chapter two, That deals exclusively with the first vision account but we have to cover these couple of paragraphs in chapter one in order to be thorough so here's where we begin when joseph was 12 religious debates swept palmyra although he read little he liked to think deeply about ideas now notice here's one thing that already intrudes itself in the text there are some sources that say that joseph smith did not read very much This is different from the 1832 account where Joseph Smith reads the Bible frequently, and it is through his reading of the Bible that he concludes, even before he goes to the Grove to pray, that all the Christian churches are in a state of apostasy. He listened to preachers hoping to learn more about his immortal soul, but their sermons often left him unsettled. They told him he was a sinner in a sinful world, helpless without the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And while Joseph believed the message and felt bad about his sins, he was not sure how to find forgiveness. Now see how this is already setting the stage for Joseph Smith asking for forgiveness in the First Vision account and tracking along with that element of the 1832 account of the first vision. They're already setting the stage for him going to the grove to ask for forgiveness. Now, when they get to the actual grove, that's not going to be the only thing he asks for, but he does ask for forgiveness in the 1832 account, and so we need to prepare the reader for that fact to which they are probably not accustomed. There is a footnote, footnote 16, at the end of that sentence, and perhaps not surprisingly, if you click on that footnote, it takes you to the 1832 account, the first vision it's to joseph smith history circus summer 1832 pages one and two and yes these are the very pages that joseph fielding smith cut out of the letter book and hid in his safe for three decades if you actually want to read that you can click on the hyperlink and be directed to the joseph smith papers project where you can read the 1832 account for yourself so this is a function that is available in the online version of the saints history and i need to give credit to the church At least for that much. We will find later on that if the church really doesn't want you to read these, they will give you a hyperlink and then cross their fingers and hope you don't go there. But if the church wants you to read something, they will not provide a hyperlink in the notes. Instead, they will provide the entire text of what it is that they want you to read in the notes. We'll see at least one example of that later. Going on with chapter 1 of the Saints book, He thought going to church could help him, but he could not settle on a place to worship. The different churches argued endlessly about how people could be free of sin. After listening to these arguments for a while, Joseph was distressed to see people reading the same Bible, but coming to different conclusions about its meaning. He believed God's truth was out there, somewhere, but he did not know how to find it. Notice here that what the historians are doing is they are avoiding the 1832 account that they just used as a reference. So in the paragraph immediately preceding, they use some elements from the 1832 account. But the 1832 account says that Joseph Smith had already concluded before going to pray from reading the Bible that all the Christian churches had apostatized from the true church. That's one of those landmines. So now they're going to avoid that landmine by shifting away from the 1832 account to other accounts and say he believed God's truth was out there somewhere, but he did not know how to find it. You see how this contradicts from the mine in the 1832 account? Well, they give a footnote here, which is footnote 17. We'll click on that, and I will already bet you it's not gonna go to the 1832 account. And what do you know? It doesn't go... (laughs) And what do you know? I'm correct. It does not cite to the 1832 account now. Instead, it cites to the Joseph Smith history, in other words, the official version of the Joseph Smith account. And here, in the footnote, they cite to the Joseph Smith history, but because this is something they actually want you to read, they don't just provide a hyperlink. In the footnote, they actually give the entire text of Joseph Smith history, chapter 1, verses five through six from the Pearl of Great Price. So we can already start to see how the church historians are making it from one end of the minefield to the other and trying as best they can to avoid the mines. The deal is this, that unless the reader is as familiar with the First Vision accounts as the church historians, unless the reader knows where those mines are buried, the reader is left unaware that the church historians are doing their best to avoid the mines in the minefield While they make their way from one end to the other now chapter one continues with some other stories relating to the family but in the last few paragraphs of chapter one it sets the stage for chapter two the first vision toward the end of that chapter it states joseph attended meetings listened to soul-stirring preaching and witnessed converts shout for joy he wanted to shout with them but he often felt like he was in the middle of a war of words and opinions Who of all these parties are right, or are they all wrong together, he asked himself. If any one of them be right, which is it, and how shall I know it? Now, we recognize those words from the 1838 account of the First Vision. But notice what they slip in now. He knew he needed Christ's grace and mercy, but with so many people in churches clashing over religion, he did not know where to find it. So see how they have melded together the disparate elements of the 1832 account with the official version in the 1838 account. They not only mention his desire to know who was right and who was wrong, something not present and in fact contradicted by the 1832 account, they throw in the fact that Joseph knows he needs Christ's grace and mercy, something that is present in the 1832 account and is in fact the only reason he goes to the grove to pray in the 1832 account, but something that is completely omitted from the 1838 account. So once again, the saint's book says, he knew he needed Christ's grace and mercy, but with so many people in churches clashing over religion, he did not know where to find it. See how it mixes those two beautifully? Hope that he could find answers, and peace for his soul seemed to slip away from him. Once again, they're combining both. They're going to do this throughout, but you've got to know what they're doing in order to see what they're doing. Hope that he could find answers, the 1838 account, and peace for his soul, the 1832 account, seemed to slip away from him. He wondered how anyone could find truth amid so much noise. And there is a footnote there, footnote 26, and if you click on that, you'll find that it gives his sources, Joseph Smith's 1835 journal, as well as the official version from the Pearl of Great Price. Once again, there is a hyperlink to the 1835 journal, and as for the official version, It is actually all printed out there completely in the footnote. You don't have to click any hyperlink to find that. Chapter 1 goes on. While attending a sermon, Joseph heard a minister quote from the first chapter of James in the New Testament. If any of you lack wisdom, he said, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, And upbraideth not. Now we're all familiar with this passage of scripture that serves, at least in the official version, as the impetus for Joseph Smith to go pray. Here the Saints' book adds the detail that Joseph heard a minister quote this passage from James when Joseph was attending one of those sermons. The interesting thing here is that that detail is not included in any of the four primary accounts of the first vision. What I'm saying is that even though the passage of James is mentioned in some of those primary accounts, we are given to understand that Joseph Smith just happened upon that passage while he was reading the Bible. Here, the Saints book adds the detail that Joseph Smith heard this quoted by a preacher, and if you click the footnote to footnote 27, it takes you not only to James 1.5 in the New Testament, which by the way, in the footnote, you don't have to do a hyperlink, it's printed out for you. It also gives a secondary source, which is William B. Smith's last statement in Zion's Ensign, January thirteenth, 1894, page Six. So, William Smith, brother of Joseph Smith, in 1894, approximately 74 years after these events would have transpired, gives a version of Joseph Smith's First Vision account in which he says that Joseph Smith heard this statement from a preacher. What saints will not tell you is that in other secondary accounts, Joseph Smith specifically states that he was reading the Bible and he just happened to come upon this passage while he was reading the Bible. So there's a bit of a conflict there. Now that contradiction is not that big a deal in my mind because who really cares what Joseph Smith's brother is saying 75, 74 years after the fact. He could easily get that detail wrong after the passage of so much time. What is significant to me is that the historians of the saint's book are trying to show the reader that they know the sources inside and out not only do they know the primary sources inside and out they know the secondary sources inside and out and we're going to see more of this later too the whole goal here is to impress the reader with their knowledge of the primary and secondary sources not that it necessarily adds anything of substance to the first vision account But to try and get the reader to understand that these are professionals, they know the sources, and if they're going to talk about a detail from a reminiscence of Joseph Smith's brother 75 years after the events that it's describing, then the reader can certainly trust them to describe accurately and thoroughly all the contents of all the sources. It is a way of gaining trust from the reader. And peppering a scholarly paper with extraneous footnotes is a time-honored way of going about that. If we go back to our analogy about the minefield and the historians getting from one end of the minefield to the other end of the minefield this is the equivalent of getting to a place in the minefield where there are no mines around and doing a handstand in order to really really impress the observer. That the historian knows what he or she is doing and is completely capable and giving the double impression that there are no mines in this field, there's nothing dangerous here, I'm even willing to go out To a source from 75 years after the fact to add an otherwise extraneous detail that does not contradict the narrative in order to give you the impression that this is a completely safe passage from one end of the minefield to the other there is nothing to see here folks and even when we go to the secondary sources there's nothing to see what they will not do is show you the contradictions in the primary sources and that is the whole point of this exercise is to draw focus away from any of those primary source contradictions, the mines in the minefield. But now getting back to the saints book, they're going to make this harmonize because we've got this late reminiscence of William Smith saying that Joseph Smith heard this passage mentioned by a preacher and that's how it came to his attention. We have other versions talking about how Joseph Smith read it in the New Testament himself without hearing it from a preacher. How do you harmonize both of those different elements? Well, the answer is easy, just like the nativity stories are harmonized in the New Testament. You tell both versions. You add the details from both accounts, and you do not mention how one detail is told only in one account, and the other detail is told only in the other account. So after having said in the saints' book that while attending a sermon, Joseph heard a minister quote this verse from James, it goes on to say in the very next paragraph, Joseph went home and read the verse In the Bible. So now it goes back to the 1838 account, the official version. Never did any passage of Scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine, he later remembered. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. We've read this before. We all know this. This is the 1838 account. I reflected on it again and again, knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. He had searched the Bible before as if it held all the answers. Well, now wait a second. He had searched the Bible before as if it held all the answers. If you were searching the Bible as if it held all the answers, that sounds like you're pretty thoroughly reading the Bible and studying the Bible. And that is consistent with some accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision. But even here, <laughs> but even here the historians who wrote the Saints book come perilously close to stepping on a landmine because it was earlier, several paragraphs up in the same chapter that we just read, where they give a different version of Joseph Smith, one who did not read the Bible very much. You remember we read, when Joseph was 12, religious debate swept Palmyra. Although he read little, he liked to think deeply about ideas. And that is one version from the different accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision. He doesn't read very much, but he does attend the different sermons and he thinks deeply about ideas. But now we go down one, two, three, four, five, six. Seven, eight, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 paragraphs from that statement that Joseph Smith read little, but he liked to think deeply about ideas, and we have the following. He had searched the Bible before as if it held all the answers. So here, they actually do step on, a landmine. Now it's separated by 13 paragraphs. It's not a big deal. Most readers are not going to get this. I didn't even get this as I was preparing for this podcast. It only occurred to me right now while I was recording. But here they inadvertently tip their hand and give the other version of Joseph Smith from other First Vision accounts, which is that he read the Bible backward and forward. And it was from that reading of the Bible that he determined that all the Christian sects had apostatized from the true faith. Going on with this passage, he had searched the Bible before as if it held all the answers. But now the Bible was telling him he could go directly to God for personal answers to his questions. Joseph decided to pray. So here's the last paragraph of chapter 1, setting the scene for chapter 2. Joseph decided to pray. He had never prayed out loud before, but he trusted the Bible's promise. Ask in faith, nothing wavering, it taught. God would hear his questions even if they came out awkwardly. And that is the last sentence of the first chapter. I think that is an awkward last sentence, but that's what it is. God would hear his questions even if they came out awkwardly. Now we go to chapter 2, which is Hear Him. Let's go over this quickly and let's see how the church historians avoid the contradictory and problematic issues, especially in the 1832 account of the first vision. We've already seen how it is that they're avoiding the fact that that the main purpose of Joseph Smith going to pray in the 1832 account was for forgiveness of sins, which is different from the 1838 account where he goes to find out which church is true. And let's see how they deal with the problematic issue that the 1832 account mentions Joseph Smith seeing one being in the first vision as compared with subsequent accounts where he sees two beings. Chapter 2, Saints Book, titled Hear Him. Joseph rose early on a spring morning in 1820 and set out for the woods near his home. The day was clear and beautiful, and sunlight filtered through the branches overhead. He wanted to be alone when he prayed, and he knew a quiet spot in the woods where he had recently been clearing trees. He had left his axe there, wedged in a stump. Now, this is an unusual detail. It is not mentioned you will recall in any of the four primary versions of joseph smith's first vision but there is a footnote here it's footnote one in chapter two and if we click on footnote one we will find a number of sources one of which is the joseph smith history in the pearl of great price verse 14 which they print out for us so we don't have to hit the hyperlink to see it another is the joseph smith history from 1838 to 1856 volume a1 page three that is the source for the official history of the church. And at the bottom, we have this interesting secondary source, which is called The Prairies, Nauvoo, Joe Smith, The Temple, The Mormons, and etc. There is a helpful hyperlink there. We'll click on that. It will take us to the Joseph Smith papers, and we find out that this source is based upon an interview with Joseph Smith from August of 1843. If we hit the source note, we see this interview was conducted by David Nye White and was included in his August 1843 publication titled The Prairies, Nauvoo, Joe Smith, the Temple, the Mormons, and etc., which was published in the Pittsburgh Weekly Gazette. Now, Apparently, this interview occurred on 21st August 1843 and the article itself was published in the Pittsburgh Weekly Gazette on September 15th, about a month later, 1843. They include a photocopy of the article and it is from this secondary source that we find this detail that is not mentioned in any of the other sources. Now this detail is a detail that makes no difference. It makes no difference if Joseph Smith went to a place where there was a stump with an axe that he had left in it. But this is once again designed to show to the reader that these historians know the sources, both primary and secondary, inside out, and so you can trust them to give a full and absolute and complete account of Joseph Smith's first vision. Something that at the same time we know, because we know what's in those accounts, they are determined not to do. This is all for show. Now notice something else though. If you actually look at this account, you find how it is that Joseph Smith happened upon that passage in James 1.5. It didn't have anything to do with a minister. In fact, he words it in such a way as to let us understand that no, it didn't have anything to do with hearing a minister quote it. Instead, he simply happened upon it by chance. The word he uses is promiscuously as he was reading the Bible beginning with this quote from the article in the Pittsburgh Weekly Gazette. Joseph Smith speaking in the interview, The Lord does reveal himself to me. I know it. He revealed himself to me first when I was about 14 years old, a mere boy. I will tell you about it. There was a reformation among the different religious denominations in the neighborhood where I lived, and I became serious and was desirous to know what church to join. While thinking of this matter... Okay, now listen closely. While thinking of this matter, i.e. which church to join, I opened the Testament, that would be the New Testament, I opened the Testament promiscuously on these words in James, ask of the Lord who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. I just determined I'd ask him. And then it goes on saying, I immediately went out into the woods where my father had a clearing and went to the stump where I had stuck my axe when I had quit work. And I kneeled down and prayed, saying, O oh Lord, what church shall I join? Now, that last part will become important later. For right now, I want to focus on the fact that in this account, Joseph Smith says, no, I didn't hear from a preacher this passage from James. And actually, I wasn't just reading my way through the Bible when I found it. Instead, I sat down, I opened the Bible promiscuously, he says, or in other words, simply by chance, and his eyes landed on this passage from James, which served as a way of communicating a message from the divine written word, i.e. from God to him, that if he wants to get information and find out which church is true in this account, then he just needs to go and ask God, and that's what he determines to do. So unfortunately, at the same time that the historians are showing how well they know the secondary sources and are giving a hyperlink to it to show that yes, Joseph Smith had left his axe in a stump and that's where he went to go pray for the first vision. In that same account, Joseph Smith appears to be giving a contradictory version of how it is that he stumbled upon that passage in James that is different from the one given in 1894 by his brother William B. Smith that he heard it in a sermon by a preacher. So they give links to both of those accounts which appear to be at least in tension with each other and they include both of those different details in the narrative they're telling in the Saints book. William B. Smith says Joseph heard it from a preacher. Joseph Smith here in this interview with the Pittsburgh Weekly Gazette says, nothing about the minister, but says he just happened to open up his Bible and boom, there it was, James 1:5. But instead of actually dealing with the apparent contradiction here, What the saints' book does is what we are now learning to expect from them. They simply include both details and harmonize them into one great whole. That is the purpose of the narrative, to harmonize details, even if they appear to be in contradiction. And those details that are really problematic and are definitely in contradiction, well, we're just not going to talk about those at all. And now we're only through the first paragraph of chapter 2, so I'll try and hurry this along. Sorry about that detour. You really have to know... All the details, as well as the historians, in order to see how it is the historians are continuing to suppress the history of the LDS Church from its members. And that is the point of this entire podcast, to show that not only is suppression of the First Vision accounts, and specifically contradictory and problematic aspects of the First Vision accounts, something that happened decades ago, 50 years ago, and more, it is something that continues to go on in the LDS Church, up to the present moment, and this saint's book is a classic example of it, especially as it regards the first vision accounts. He had left his axe there wedged in a stump, second paragraph. Finding the place, Joseph looked around to make sure he was by himself. He was anxious about praying out loud and did not want to be interrupted. Satisfied he was alone, Joseph knelt on the cool earth and began to share the desires of his heart with God. He asked for mercy and forgiveness and for wisdom to find answers to his questions. Okay, now notice that. Once again, we're doing the Venn diagram. We're taking the 1832 account where Joseph Smith asks for forgiveness and the 1838 account where Joseph Smith asks not for forgiveness, but to know which church is true, i.e. for wisdom, and we're gonna combine them all again in a big circle that we draw around all the different accounts. Once again, here's what they say. He asked for mercy, That's the 1832 account, and forgiveness, that's the 1832 account, and for wisdom, that's the 1838 account, to find answers to his prayers. O Lord, he prayed, what church shall I join? Now, this is an interesting detail because we get a footnote here. In all the four primary accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision, which we just went over in some detail at the beginning of this podcast, we don't know what words he prayed before he was seized upon by that satanic force, at least in those accounts which mention the satanic force. But here it says, we do know, and what he prayed was, oh Lord, he prayed, what church shall I join? Now obviously this is not from the 1832 account because he never asked what church he should join in the 1832 account. This must be from a different account. And it must be from an account that's different from the primary accounts of Joseph Smith. We click on footnote two and we find that we are once again directed, hmm, interestingly, not only to Joseph Smith's summer 1832 account, where he doesn't actually ask anything about which church is true. That's strange to have a footnote there. Some might think that was misleading. But also back to that same article for the Pittsburgh Weekly Gazette, the Prairies, Nauvoo, Joe Smith, the Temple, the Mormons, etc. Let's click on that again, shall we? Oh, right, that's where we get to that last thing I read from this article, which I said would become important later. This is the only account of which I'm aware where Joseph Smith says what he prayed at the beginning. I immediately went out into the woods where my father had a clearing and went to the stump where I had stuck my axe when I had quit work. Remember, there's the axe. And I kneeled down and prayed, saying, O Lord, what church shall I join? Directly, I saw a light, and then a glorious personage in the light, and then another personage. And the first personage said to the second, Behold, my beloved son, hear him. I then addressed the second person, saying, O Lord, what church shall I join? So in this account, he asks the question first, before the beings appear, and then he asks the question again after they appear. Now notice that in this version, there is no mention of the satanic influence that tries to keep him from praying. And by the way, I need to point out here that the Satanic Influence does appear in the 1838 account of the First Vision. This account is given in an interview in 1843 and it does not mention the Satanic Influence, neither does the Wentworth letter published in 1842. So we have to be careful here. Because we know that in the 1838 account, Joseph Smith mentions that satanic influence in some great and florid detail. But in the 1842 account, he does not mention it. And again, in this 1843 account, in this interview for the Pittsburgh Weekly Gazette, he does not mention it. So the fact that he does not mention the satanic influence is a choice that he is making to not include it. It is a detail that he has included in the official version, but it is a detail that he omits apparently intentionally in subsequent recountings. So what does this mean? Well what this means is that just because Joseph Smith omits a detail in one place and supplies it in another does not mean that he's making it up. There are instances where we can see that Joseph Smith omits details that he has related before so we have to understand that as is common in human experience sometimes we will omit details from a certain account Because of the audience to which we are speaking. And once again, we see that in the missionary discussions where the missionaries go out and they talk about Joseph Smith's first vision even as long as 40 years ago, and I believe currently today, when missionaries talk about the first vision, they are instructed to omit the satanic influence part of the first vision and focus on the appearance of God and Jesus Christ. So once again, In fairness to Joseph Smith and in fairness to logic and to truth, we have to be cognizant of the fact that simply mentioning one detail from a story in one place and not mentioning it in another does not mean that it did not happen. So, details that are mentioned in one place and not mentioned in another are not as significant to my mind as contradictions. And that is why I've tried to focus on the contradiction specifically with the 1832 account as compared with subsequent accounts. But here, the historians once again are trying to dazzle the reader by showing their grasp of the facts in the secondary sources and using those extraneous and largely unknown facts to create one harmonious telling of Joseph Smith's first vision account while imbuing the reader with a sense of trust, and, dare I say it, awe at the knowledge of the historian who's writing this, so that they will be able to trust the historian to give them a full and complete account of the first vision. Going on with the second chapter... As he prayed his tongue seemed to swell until he could not speak. He heard footsteps behind him. Ah, here are the footsteps so we know that they're referencing the 1835 account of the first vision, the only one that mentions these footsteps. He heard footsteps behind him but saw no one when he turned around. He tried to pray again, but the footsteps grew louder as if someone was coming for him. He sprang to his feet and spun around, but still he saw no one. Footnote 3. We're going to expect to see the 1835 account of the first vision, and lo and behold, that is exactly What we find, Joseph Smith journal, 1835. Perfect. Now this is a detail that can be added to this story without conflicting with anything else. It is a detail that is mentioned only in the 1835 account of the first vision and mentioned nowhere else, which itself is a little bit strange, but it is nevertheless a detail that does not contradict any of the other details and it can be added to the narrative without stepping on any landmines going on with the next paragraph. Suddenly, an unseen power seized him. Okay, now we're going to get to the 1838 account and the satanic influence there. Suddenly, an unseen power seized him. He tried to speak again, but his tongue was still bound. A thick darkness closed in around him until he could no longer see the sunlight. Doubts and awful images flashed across his mind, confusing and distracting him. He felt as if some terrible being, real and immensely powerful, wanted to destroy him. So that is basically the 1838 account with a strange new detail added. That strange new detail, which is unfamiliar to most Mormons and was unfamiliar to me until I read this, was this line. Doubts and awful images flashed across his mind, confusing and distracting him. Now where on earth does that come from? It's not in any of the primary accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision. So let's click on footnote four and see if they tell us what we get is the Joseph Smith history. Yes, we recognize that much from the official version. Oh, but then we get this interesting footnote. It's in German. It's called Ein Ruf aus der Wüste, pages 15 through 16. What on earth is that? Is anybody really going to click on something German? Well, I'm going to. And here we come up with, oh, Ein Ruf aus der Wüste means a cry out of the wilderness. It's a pamphlet. It's written by Orson Hyde. It's from 1842. So this is a pamphlet written by Orson Hyde in 1842 in which he relates Joseph Smith's account of the first vision. And Orson Hyde is the one who gives us this detail, whether it originated with Orson Hyde or whether Joseph Smith really told him this, is up for grabs. But he's the one who gives us this detail about the distracting images that Satan gave Joseph Smith in order to try and dissuade him from continuing with his prayer to God. Here it is. On one occasion, he went to a small grove of trees near his father's home. Now, obviously, this is the English translation of the German tract. On one occasion, he went to a small grove of trees near his father's home and knelt down before God in solemn prayer. The adversary then made several strenuous efforts to cool his ardent soul. He filled his mind with doubts and brought to mind all manner of inappropriate images to prevent him from obtaining the object of his endeavors. But the overflowing mercy of God came to buoy him up and gave new impetus to his failing strength. So Orson Hyde doesn't tell us What these inappropriate images are that Satan brought to his mind in order to try and dissuade Joseph Smith from obtaining the object of his endeavors, all we know is that the historians who wrote the Saints book are once again showing off to the readers and taking every extraneous detail from every secondary source they know and throwing it into this narrative in order to avoid talking about the real issues and the real problems with the primary sources. Now think about this. If you know the problems with the primary sources like we do, what we can see these historians doing is spending all this time and all this research and all this effort and all these footnotes in order to dazzle their readers with their competence while at the same time completely avoiding the mention of the really significant issues. You have to know what they're doing before you can know what they're doing. And what they're doing should at this point be obvious to listeners of this podcast. They are doing anything and everything they can do other than actually dealing with the issues. Now, you will notice that we have gotten in the Saints book to the point where Joseph Smith has already started to pray. We know the words even that he used to pray from that secondary source, "'O Lord, what church shall I join?' But we're to the point where Satan is now interfering and trying to keep Joseph Smith from getting through to God and having God appear. And the church historians have completely avoided talking about the contradiction, the actual necessary contradiction between the 1832 account and the 1838 account. That the 1832 account says that Joseph Smith already knew from his study of the Bible that all the churches had apostatized from the true church of Jesus Christ versus the 1838 account when that is the reason for his going to the grove in the first place was to pray to God to know which of all the churches was true, and then saying that after God told him, join none of them for they're all wrong, that that thought had never even entered into his heart before. So, with all the footnotes and all the extraneous details that don't matter one whit, the church historians have already passed the point where they should have mentioned that, if they were going to mention it, they have avoided it completely and hoping that their readers are none the wiser. The chapter goes on, Exerting all his strength, Joseph called once more to God. His tongue loosened, and he pleaded for deliverance. But he found himself sinking into despair, overwhelmed by the unbearable darkness and ready to abandon himself to destruction. Next paragraph, At that moment a pillar of light appeared over his head. It descended slowly and seemed to set the woods on fire. As the light rested on him, Joseph felt the unseen power release its hold. The Spirit of God took its place, filling him— with peace and unspeakable joy. Okay, now we're to a very important point in this narrative because we know, because we're well informed, that the 1832 account mentions Joseph Smith seeing one being, the 1835 account mentions one being and then another one joining him, and then the 1838 account mentions two beings without any mention of one coming first and the other one second. So what are they going to do here? How are they going to frame the story? How are they going to avoid the landmines, the tension, is almost unbearable. Peering into the light, the chapter says, peering into the light, what does Joseph see? Joseph saw God the Father standing above him in the air. Well, that's different already from the 1832 account because in the 1832 account, it mentions seeing only Jesus standing above him in the air, but damn the 1832 account full speed ahead. Peering into the light, Joseph saw God the Father standing above him in the air. His face was brighter and more glorious than anything Joseph had ever seen. God called him by name and pointed to another being who appeared beside him. This is my beloved son, he said, hear him. So now we're going to default in favor of the 1838 official First Vision account with two beings appearing and the first one calling Joseph by name and then pointing to the other saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now notice the careful use of language. We already know we're going to not mention the 1832 account, But now notice what they do between the 1835 account and the 1838 account. The 1838 account just has the two beings appearing apparently simultaneously, and the 1835 account has one appear, and then shortly thereafter a second one joins him. Notice how this language is so carefully used as to be able to accurately describe both of those accounts. God called him by name and pointed to another being who appeared beside him. Oh, that's brilliant. That really is clever. Do you see how that language could describe both beings appearing simultaneously? God points to another being who appeared beside him. Okay, he appears beside him. It doesn't say when he appears beside him. Who appeared beside him? That can cover either the 1835 account or the 1838 account. That is a very nice touch. Color me impressed. This is my beloved son. He said, hear him. Going on. Joseph looked into the face of Jesus Christ. It was as bright and glorious as the father's. Joseph, the Savior said, thy sins are forgiven. Wait a second, full stop. The Savior says what? Joseph, thy sins are forgiven? That has nothing to do with the 1838 account. That is, of course, going back to the 1832 account. And now we can see the historians once again trying to draw that Venn diagram as big as they can and include Joseph Smith's request for forgiveness in this official version. They are including all of the elements that they can include from all the different accounts in order to try and make it sound like it's one story joseph the savior said thy sins Are forgiven. His burden lifted. Joseph repeated his question: What church shall I join? So now, once again, we're going to go back to that German tract by Orson Hyde, where he asked that question: What church shall I join before Heavenly Father and Jesus show up? And then he asked it again after they show up. So that's why it says, His burden lifted. Joseph repeated his question: What church shall I join? Join none of them. The Savior told him. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. The Lord told Joseph that the world was steeped in sin. None doeth good, he explained. They have turned aside from the gospel and keep not my commandments. Sacred truths had been lost or corrupted, but he promised to reveal the fullness of his gospel to Joseph in the future. Now here in this footnote, the historians send us not only to the official history of the church, but if you scroll down past that, you will find a link to Levi Richards' journal from June 11, 1843, an extract from that journal in which he writes down Joseph Smith once again relating his first vision account. This is another secondary source. It is actually so brief that there are no new details that are added in this account, and it is apparent to me that the historians are using it in their footnote, not because they're actually quoting anything from it or citing to any information from it, but merely to show off their own erudition and impress the reader. This is what is known in scholarly circles as padding your footnotes. Here's what it says from this link in Levi Richard's journal. President J. Smith bore testimony to the same, saying that when he was a youth, he began to think about these things, but could not find out which of all the sects were right. He went into the grove and inquired of the Lord which of all the sects were right, received for answer that none of them were right, that they were all wrong, and that the everlasting covenant was broken. That's it. That's all he says about the first vision in this journal. And what we see is that, once again, this is an effort by the historians to try and include references to all of these secondary sources to Joseph Smith's first vision, even though they don't make any difference. And even though they are done as an obvious attempt, at least obvious to my mind, and obvious to anybody who is familiar with the contents of the primary accounts of the first vision, that what they are doing is trying to serve as a distraction to not dealing with the actual issues that are raised in those primary accounts. And we just saw how they did this by eliding and not mentioning and glossing over the fact that the 1832 account does not mention two beings appearing, but mentions Joseph Smith seeing only one being, while at the same time inserting all these footnotes to secondary sources as a distraction to the reader to keep them from seeing what they're saying, or more accurately, to keep them from seeing what they're not saying. Going on with chapter 2. As the Savior spoke, Joseph saw hosts of angels. Now we know where that's from. That's from the 1835 account of the first vision. That's the only one where Joseph Smith mentions angels, and I saw many angels in this vision. As the Savior spoke, Joseph saw hosts Of angels, and the light around them blazed brighter than the noonday. Now, Joseph Smith doesn't say anything about the angels with the blaze brighter than the noonday sun. He also doesn't say when it was in the vision that he saw the angels. So obviously, the scholars here are taking a little bit of literary license in order to make it a unified retelling of the first vision. As the Savior spoke, Joseph saw hosts of angels, and the light around them blazed brighter than the noonday sun. "'Behold, and lo, I come quickly,' the Lord said, "'clothed in the glory of my Father.'" Joseph expected the woods to be devoured by the brilliance, but the trees burned like Moses' bush and were not consumed. When the light faded, Joseph found himself lying on his back looking up into heaven. The pillar of light had departed and his guilt and confusion were gone. See, once again, they're combining the 1832 account request for forgiveness. His guilt is gone and the 1838 account where he asks to know which church is true and his confusion was gone. See how they're both combined there? The pillar of light had departed and his guilt and confusion were gone. Feelings of divine love filled his heart. So once again, they go back to the 1832 account where it talks about the feelings of divine love that Joseph Smith felt for days after the event. Not mentioned in the 1838 account, but is mentioned in the 1832 account. So that concludes the narrative in the Saints' history book of Joseph Smith's First Vision and you can see how it is that the church historians have pulled out all the stops in getting from one end of the minefield of the Joseph Smith First Vision accounts to the other end of the field without stepping on one of those landmines and blowing themselves to smithereens. But in the process of this, they have linked to the original accounts, including the 1832 account in the Joseph Smith Papers project. What happens if one of the readers of the Saints book actually decides to click those links and do some research on their own and not be satisfied with the whitewashed and streamlined version of Joseph Smith's first vision given in the Saints book? Well, what they have decided to do is to spend the last three paragraphs of chapter two addressing the concerns that might be raised in the minds of those who do additional research. They don't come out and just say what it is they're doing, but they do it by implication. No need to raise questions in the minds of those who don't do the additional research. But once we know what it is they're doing and what the problems are and where the minds are located, we can see exactly what it is that they are about. Going to the top of the third paragraph from the end of chapter two. Once Joseph discovered that sharing his vision only turned his neighbors against him, he kept it mostly to himself, content with the knowledge God had given him. So the point of that sentence is to try and address why it is that the first account we have of Joseph Smith's first vision is not written down until 12 years after the event is alleged to have happened. Once again, that sentence. Once Joseph discovered that sharing his vision only turned his neighbors against him, see that's why he kept it to himself and didn't write it down until 1832, he kept it mostly to himself, content with the knowledge God had given him. Later, after he moved away from New York, He tried to record his sacred experience in the woods. So after he gets away from those lousy neighbors in New York, the ones who get turned against him by telling his story, and moves away to Kirtland, Ohio, now he's going to make an effort to write it down. And indeed, he was in Kirtland, Ohio in 1832 when he wrote the first account of his first vision. The paragraph goes on. He described his yearning for forgiveness and the Savior's warning to a world in need of repentance. Now indeed that is exactly what he writes about in his 1832 account of the first vision. He describes his yearning for forgiveness and the Savior's warning to a world in need of repentance. Again, they're not going to tell you that there are serious issues and problems when comparing the 1832 account with subsequent accounts. However, they are going to describe it correctly here. Joseph Smith asks for forgiveness And the Savior gives him forgiveness and does warn the world in need of repentance. In fact, the Savior says, I'm coming back real soon, so everybody better get their act together. Going on with this paragraph, he, Joseph, he wrote the words out himself. See, this is the 1832 account of the first vision, the only one that he wrote himself. He wrote the words out himself in halting language, trying earnestly to capture the majesty of the moment. Okay, let's talk about this sentence here for a second. There are a couple of things in this sentence that I want to point out. First, we have to understand that the goal of the church historians in writing these concluding paragraphs to chapter 2 is to draw focus away from the 1832 account and toward the 1838 account. In order to do that, they have to cast doubt on the 1832 account. and By that I mean they have to cast doubt on its completeness and its accuracy. Obviously, it cannot be complete because Joseph Smith mentioned seeing only one being. If it had been complete, of course, he would have mentioned seeing two beings like subsequent accounts, but he does not. Therefore, we have to indicate to the reader that this is not complete, that the 1832 account is not complete in its description of what happened. They also have to suggest that it is not Accurate, Because obviously the accurate account is the 1838 official account in the Pearl of Great Price where Joseph Smith does not know that none of the churches are true before he goes to the grove to ask God and finds out for the first time when God tells him that none of the churches are true. The 1832 account must therefore not be accurate when it says Joseph Smith had already figured that out from his study of the Bible before he went to pray. So now understanding these are the two imperatives that the church historians have got to foster in the reader who actually does research and goes and finds out that these are problematic issues between the first vision accounts. Let's read that sentence again. He wrote the words out himself in halting language. Now, that's a strange word to use, halting. I'm not exactly sure how somebody writes in a halting way. Usually, we think of halting as describing the way a person speaks, not the way a person writes. Nevertheless, they want to talk about halting language. The idea here is that it is not complete. He's only writing haltingly. Now, I personally am not convinced it is an accurate description of Joseph Smith's 1832 account to describe his language there as halting. We read the entire account earlier, but let me go back to one paragraph from that First Vision account of 1832. Let me read it to you, and I will let you judge as to whether you think Joseph Smith used halting language In his description, for I looked upon the sun, the glorious luminary of the earth, and also the moon rolling in their majesty through the heavens, and also the stars shining in their courses, and the earth also upon which I stood, and the beasts of the field, and the fowls of heaven, and the fish of the waters, and also man walking forth upon the face of the earth in majesty, and in the strength of beauty, whose power and intelligence in governing the things which are so exceedingly great and marvelous, even in the likeness of him. Who created them. Okay, I'm not going to read the rest of the paragraph, you can go back and read it yourself or listen to this podcast again where I read it in full, but that is flowing language. There is nothing halting about it. So why is it that the Saints book describes Joseph Smith's 1832 account as using halting language? Well, the reason why is because they're trying to account for the fact that later on he does not mention two beings appearing to him and his seeing two beings, he mentions seeing only one being. That's the point of that. It's a point that they try and make that he used halting language, even though if you actually read the 1832 account yourself, you will see that the language is anything but halting. But they go on in that sentence. He wrote the words out himself in halting language, trying earnestly to capture the majesty of the moment. Now the use of that word trying is also another effort on their part to get you to understand that the 1832 account is not complete and it is not necessarily accurate in all its details. He was trying earnestly to capture the majesty of the moment. Now, that word trying indicates that he did not succeed. If I tell you that yesterday I tried to run a mile without stopping, the implication there is obvious. I tried, but I failed. Similarly, this implication is what the saint's book wants the readers to take away from this sentence. That Joseph Smith was trying earnestly to capture the majesty of the moment, but he failed. And so that is going to be used to explain away why it is that he mentions only one being appearing. Going on to the second paragraph from the end of chapter 2. In the years that followed, he recounted the vision more publicly, drawing on scribes who could help him better express what defied all description. Okay, so now what the Saints book is going to do is it's going to blame Joseph Smith writing the first vision account in 1832 himself in halting language in which he tried earnestly to capture the majesty of the moment. Well, that is somehow inferior to his subsequent accounts in which he used scribes. At this point, we enter bizarro world because any historian will tell you that an account that is written by an individual himself or herself is going to be more trustworthy at representing what that person actually says or feels or experienced than an account that is dictated to a scribe. Why is that? Because if you're writing it yourself, you are controlling exactly how it is written down. If you are dictating it to a scribe, you are taking the chance that the scribe may get something wrong. Might miss a word or two, might inadvertently change a word or two. But really, even that is somewhat of a misnomer because anytime anybody dictates something to a scribe, you don't just dictate it to a scribe and let him run to the press with it. You review it first to make sure the scribe got it the way you wanted it. But this is actually the reverse of most Mormon apologetics. Anytime a scribe writes down something that Joseph Smith said in a way that reflects badly on church history, the first line of argument from the apologist is, well, the scribe must have gotten it wrong. The case of the kinderhook plates comes immediately to mind where joseph smith's scribe william clayton i believe wrote down that joseph smith said that the kinderhook plates contained the history of a descendant of ham through the loins of pharaoh well it turned out that the kinderhook plates were a fake and so joseph smith better not have made an attempt to translate plates that were a fake because that would tend to show that he was a false prophet therefore the apologists come forward and their first line of attack is to attack described. This isn't something that Joseph Smith wrote himself. No, this is something that William Clayton wrote. And so the idea being that William Clayton got this wild hair, wrote something down as if Joseph Smith had said it. Joseph Smith never got wise to it. And now... It's William Clayton's fault for writing this down. It is the scribe's fault, you see. In this case, though, the situation is reversed. It is the 1832 account that was written by Joseph Smith in his own hand, and it was the subsequent accounts that were dictated to scribes. Therefore, we want to give primacy to those accounts that were written by the scribes while simultaneously discrediting the account that Joseph Smith wrote himself. Let me read that sentence again. In the years that followed, he recounted the vision more publicly, drawing on scribes who could help him better express what defied all description. So you see, having scribes somehow gave Joseph Smith the ability to better describe his first vision, as opposed to the one he wrote with his own hands. Now I've got to make another comment here. The job of a scribe is not to help a person better express what it is that they're saying. No, the job of a scribe is to write down exactly what it is that Joseph Smith is saying, to get his words down exactly as he's saying them. That is the job of a scribe. The job of a scribe is not to help Joseph Smith describe his experiences more fully or more accurately. The scribe wasn't there for the first vision. That's Joseph Smith's job. So this is one of the strangest sentences that I have encountered in these first two chapters from the Saints History that Joseph Smith was drawing on scribes who could help him better express what defied all description you see that makes no sense in the real world that flies in the face of what really happens in the real world but nevertheless the historians here feel compelled to say it in order to discount the 1832 version and give more credence to the subsequent accounts which were written by scribes, but which ended up being, in the case of the 1838 account, the official version of the first vision. Going on in this paragraph, in talking about those later versions where Joseph Smith used scribes, he told of his desire to find the true church and described God the Father appearing first to introduce the sun. Yes, that is true. That is what he talks about in the subsequent accounts in which he describes the first vision. But notice that they never make the connecting link that the 1832 account mentions only one being appearing, while subsequent accounts mention two beings appearing. Going on with the paragraph, he wrote less about his own search for forgiveness and more about the Savior's universal message of truth and the need for a restoration of of the gospel well yes that's technically true but maybe they're the ones who are using halting language here because it's not a matter of him writing less about his own search for forgiveness and more about the savior's universal message of truth and the need for a restoration of the gospel the issue is that in the 1832 account he writes exclusively about his own search for forgiveness And by the 1838 account he's not writing about his search for forgiveness at all instead he's writing exclusively about the savior's universal message of truth and the need for a restoration of the gospel oh and by the way going back to that third paragraph from the end notice that they use the word tried not once but twice see there's that implication he tried in the 1832 account to get it out completely to get it out accurately but he failed later After he moved away from New York, he tried to record his sacred experience in the woods. And then, in the last sentence of that paragraph, he wrote the words out himself in halting language, trying earnestly to capture the majesty of the moment. See, it's very important that they emphasize this word, try, in regard to the 1832 account of the first vision. He tried, but he couldn't do it. No one can eat just one. Now going back to the third paragraph, the final paragraph in chapter two, with each effort to record his experience. Joseph testified that the Lord had heard and answered his prayer. So now what they're going to do is they're going to go and take the 20,000 foot view of all of these different accounts and talk about them in such general terms that they actually do harmonize. If you talk about anything in sufficiently general terms, you can make them harmonized regardless of how much they may contradict each other when you actually get down to the details as we have done in this podcast. For example, a mountain and a canyon are two very different things. But if I take a mountain and a canyon and I describe them in such general terms as saying that they are both geological features, I can make them sound as if they are the same thing to somebody who has never actually seen a mountain or a canyon. In the same way, the Saints' Book is describing different accounts of the First Vision in such general terms here as to make it sound like they are describing the same thing. With each effort, the Saints' Book says, with each effort to record his experience, Joseph testified that the Lord had heard and answered his prayer. So yes, all the accounts are consistent insofar as that goes. The problem, of course, is that in the 1832 account, it is only the Lord, singular, Heard and answered his prayer, whereas in subsequent accounts it is the Lord, plural, who hears and answers his prayer. As a young man, it goes on, as a young man, he learned that the Savior's church was no longer on the earth. I love this sentence. This is a masterpiece of a sentence because the historians are just as aware as you and I are. That the main conflict the absolute necessary contradiction between the 1832 account and subsequent accounts is what joseph smith knew and when he knew it in the 1832 account he knows before he goes to pray that none of the churches are true in the 1838 account he doesn't know that until he goes to the grove to pray this is the absolute rock bottom necessary contradiction between the first vision accounts and when i say a necessary contradiction i'm using that in a technical sense this is an absolute contradiction. It's not an implicit contradiction. It's not something that, well, it might be able to explain in another way. This is a necessary contradiction. But notice how in this one sentence, they take the 20,000 foot view and they describe it so generally that it covers both contradictory accounts. Once again, the sentence, as a young man, he learned that the Savior's church was no longer on the earth. Well, That's true. He was a young man in the 1832 account when he learned from reading the Bible before he went to pray that the Savior's church was no longer on the earth. And in the 1838 account, he was still a young man when he learned that after asking God in the grove and God telling him that there was no true church on the earth and saying that this idea that all the churches were in apostasy had never entered into his heart before hearing it from the Lord. I want to give extra credit to the historian who came up with this sentence. This is masterful. As a young man, he learned that the Savior's church was no longer on the earth. And now, chapter 2 concludes, but the Lord had promised to reveal more about his gospel in due time. Well, yeah, except in the 1832 account where he doesn't. So Joseph resolved to trust in God, stay true to the commandment he had received in the woods, In the accounts other than the 1832 account where he receives no commandment in the woods, stay true to the commandment he had received in the woods and wait patiently for further direction. Period. End of paragraph. End of chapter 2. End of the first vision account as set forth in the new history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints titled Saints. So in conclusion, we first off have to give credit to the church for providing, in links to the Joseph Smith Papers Project, access to the original primary documents of Joseph Smith's First Vision, including the problematic 1832 account of the First Vision. Having said that, we can see how the way in which the church sets forth its new and improved recitation of the First Vision is a patchwork of different details from all the different accounts both primary accounts as well as a number of secondary accounts. They have put this patchwork together in order to give an account that is actually a completely new version of the First Vision account. The account that is given here in the Saints book has never been heard before because it takes bits and pieces from all these other different versions. We can also see how this new version of the First Vision account cleverly and adroitly avoids all the landmines and pitfalls of contradictory and problematic facts and details in the First Vision accounts by simply not mentioning them and trusts that the reader will not be familiar enough with the primary sources to know where the landmines are located and be able to see how it is that the historians are deftly avoiding stepping on them. And finally, if perchance the reader should do additional research and actually read through and think about these primary sources, the last failsafe is the final three paragraphs in Chapter 2 in which the authors attempt to address concerns that may be raised in the reader's mind without ever actually saying that they're trying to address the doubts that may be raised in the reader's mind. So the question I will leave you with is whether this new recitation of the First Vision account qualifies as the Church being transparent about its history, or whether, as some might argue, it is still another example of how the church continues to suppress negative aspects of its history from its own membership. When we know what the landmines are and where they're buried, and when we can then see all the contortions the Saints book goes through in order to avoid those landmines, it becomes more and more evident that yes, the church is continuing to hide its history, even in a new book about the history of the church, which is proclaimed by the church to be transparent. Let it not be forgotten that Elder Stephen Snow, the Executive Director of Church History, said this when the new volume of Saints was released, quote, If people read this, they'll understand we've been pretty straightforward in our telling of the story, unquote. That's from an Associated Press news story published September 5th, 2018. And finally, to quote Elder Ballard, church leaders are being as transparent as they know how to be. So. Just
1: trust us wherever you are in the world and you share this message with anyone else who raises the question about the church not being transparent. We're as transparent as we know how to be in telling the truth.
0: We have to do that. That's the Lord's way. Unfortunately, as this podcast has demonstrated, when it comes to transparency, the LDS Church still has a long way to go. I want to close out this podcast with a special song written by my good friend, Weird Alma. It's called Gaslighting. I think if you listen to the lyrics of this song, you'll find why it's so appropriate to the subject of this podcast. And if you listen closely enough, you'll even hear a humorous reference to none other than Bill Reel. This is Weird Alma singing his song, Gaslighting. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. The Mormon church is so dogmatic, it's really problematic.
2: It can feel so traumatic when the gas lightens. Gas lightens. They'll make you question everything about your own sanity. Oh yeah. When you question, they make you question. If something seems wrong, that's just the way it's supposed to be. Oh yeah. It's your problem, not the church's problem. If you point out something's bad, then they'll say you must be mad. They'll attack your real intent while dismissing what you meant. It's gaslighting. No, 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 oh well, it's no, no, so no, gaslighting no, with the things the prophet Joe would do. No see he didn't use. But then they change the narrative and tell you that they always knew He used a seer of course he used a seer It's always been uh-huh. Orwellian, uh-huh. it's gaslighting Howlin said the missionary force would grow as God directed, oh yeah But when it shrank they had to say that was exactly as expected, oh yeah You thought two plus two was four, might not be that anymore Cause when you start reproving, those gold start
1: a-moving, gaslighting. I am Elder Stephen L. Stickenbottom, and I welcome you to this brand new exhibit at the Church History Museum, entitled, Transparency Through the Ages. As you may know, our church has always been open and honest about our history, and so we Excuse wanted to- Excuse me? Yes? I know
2: the tour is just beginning, but I already want to bang my head against a wall. Oh, sure. Well, please use the
1: wall to your left. Okay we seem to get this a lot you can see the impression of bill real's head over there okay now moving on our first stop is to show you all of the several different accounts of joseph smith's first vision as you can plainly see through the foggy glass display case on the miniature printed copies There are no important differences between any of these accounts. It
2: looks like this 1832 diary page was torn out and taped back in.
1: Oh no, you must be imagining that. It has normal wear and, um, tear for a document of its age. Now over here, we have the book of Abraham. I heard that has some problems with its translation. I'm afraid you heard wrong. See, it never was a translation. But it says right here, translated from the papyrus. No, you see, that's not what translation means in this case. It means that Joseph was inspired by a document that had no connection whatsoever with Abraham to write a book that claims that Abraham himself wrote the book. It's rather obvious, really. Oh, and when Joseph translated the book of Abraham, he may have used this beautiful seer stone, which we are proud to display here.
2: Wait, didn't Joseph Fielding Smith insist that seer stones were never used?
1: No, you're taking that out of context. You know, you want to be careful about playing whack-a-mole with church history issues. Now, if you'll come this way, you can see a diorama depicting Joseph Smith surrounded by over 30 of his beloved wives. Of course, we understand and accept that he practiced polygamy and polyandry, as expected. Some of his Lives look really young. Some were as young as, um, several months shy of 15. But as I'm sure you're aware, several months shy of 15 was in the extreme outlier range for what was the customary age for marriage at the time.
2: We were never taught any of this stuff at church.
1: Well, if you didn't know, then it's your own fault, because many egg-headed church historians and scholars have known about these things for years. You're just not well-read enough, apparently. Hey, you want to go back to that wall again? Yeah, let's go.
2: Ow, 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 it
1: was so gaslighting
2: when the gospel topic essays were done. We used to say stuff was now it's Ooh. so gaslighting when they're redefining translation. When it says translate, it doesn't mean translate. The things they twist, uh-huh. sure make you pissed. Uh-huh. It's gaslighting. Uh-huh.